Okay. So this is our continuing look on Wednesday nights at all things related to salvation, eternal salvation. And uh, we've been kind of in this study now for, boy, six or seven months uh, since I started teaching the Wednesday night service. And in the immediately, immediate past, we've been taking a look at what the gospel is not and just uh, diving into some false understandings of the gospel, some misconceptions about the gospel, uh, all centered around really what is grace. And so uh, what I want to do tonight is pick up where we left off, but before I do that I want to review just briefly each of the points that we've gone through so far, but also open the floor for questions, clarifications, comments, things that have come uh, to your mind. I know that based on the feedback I get, both from email, people watching it online, and just in conversation, that you know this has been uh, you know uh, an enlightening topic for some people. That you know these are things that you might not think about every day, and we all are a product of our of our context and our culture and our upbringing. And so, um, part of doing theology, which theology is a process, not a product. It's a lifelong process. And part of that process means constantly evaluating our viewpoints through the lens of Scripture and being willing to strip away those things that even though we might have believed them for years or been taught them for years, that don't stand the test based on God's Word. And so uh, a lot of the, the ten false go- understandings of the Gospel that we are looking at here, and there's nothing magical about the number ten, there are as many false gospels as there are churches and denominations and false religions. But within, you know, sort of conservative Christianity, people that consider themselves, you know, by students of the word, uh, there have nevertheless sprung up some false understandings. And those are the ones that I'm primarily uh, addressing. Uh, and as we go through these, I, I know from teaching this for 30 years that inevitably... Uh, it touches a nerve with some people on certain issues. A lot of it is uh, just nomenclature. For example, when we talked uh, about the first uh, false understanding of the gospel, which was uh, commitment, if I can get there here, um, this is the four that we have looked at so far. So I guess we're on number five tonight. But when we talk about commitment, that's a very common term that people use. They talk about the gospel in terms of committing their life to Christ, committing themselves to Christ, committing their heart to Christ, that kind of thing. And they're not, you know, certainly not uh, intentionally promoting a works-based false gospel, but words mean things. You know, words mean things. And And the Bible is not ambiguous. It's not you know, hazy. It uses words, uh, and it communicates a precise truth. And so, uh, when we talked about that one a few weeks ago, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I don't know this, but maybe some of you in the uh, group here in person, or some of you uh, online, thought, you know, I've used that term, and now I see that number one, the Bible never uses that term, and it certainly never tells us that's the way we get to heaven. So. Why do I use that term? Well, it's just habit. It's just kind of what we've sort of grown up uh, doing. So, uh, so I do want to, you know, take the time here to, um, you know, answer your questions and kind of 
not go too fast. We're on no agenda. We're not here to get through material so we can get on to the next lesson. Uh, we are wanting to make sure that this understanding of grace really uh, catches on. So I just want to give a few foundational verses. It's been a while since we've looked at these. Um, uh, obviously, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, in spite of the complete clarity of that statement and that verse in Scripture, nevertheless, people uh, often still confuse the meaning of grace. Grace means free by definition. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. Uh, Romans 3.24 says we are justified freely by His grace. We couldn't be justified, meaning declared righteous, if it weren't for grace. And if we had to do something to become righteous, to be declared righteous, then it's not free. It's a, it's a contract. It's a, a quid pro quo. And if it's not free, it's not grace. So uh, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in uh, Christ Jesus. Another verse that is foundational to our understanding of the gospel is Titus 3.5, which is the theme verse for our ministry, Not By Works Ministries, which says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. And even though in Titus 3.5 that you see on the screen there, it's not by works, and in Ephesians 2.8 and 9, which we just looked at, it's not of works, in Greek it's the exact same phrase. So you could just say, not by works, here in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and you'd be, that would be a good translation of the Greek preposition. Same phrase. So uh, the Bible is very clear uh, on this, uh, that it's a free gift, and, uh, and yet the false doctrine of some degree of works-based methods of salvation just continues to this day. It's pervasive. Some of it's more blatant. Some of it's more subtle. Um, you know, we would, on the more blatant end of the extreme, would be those denominations, those churches within Christianity uh, that come right out and teach, you've got to do good works to get saved. That, that's, that's part of the deal. And that if you don't do them, you can't be saved. Or if you get saved and then you stop doing them or you do something bad, you lose it and you've got to do it again. They don't believe in eternal security because they believe that our salvation is a cooperative effort between our ability and good works and morality and God's, um, you know, uh, work in the, in the matter. I had someone ask me just this week um, that uh, they've heard and grown up learning or t being taught that if you commit suicide, you go to hell. And they wondered what I thought about that. And I said, absolutely not. The Bible never teaches that anywhere. Anywhere. You know where that idea comes from? From Roman Catholicism and the concept of mortal and venial sins. But the Bible never teaches that. Is it a sin to murder, including your own life? Of course. Yeah, it's wrong. You shouldn't do it. And it's a tragedy. But does that bad work, does that sin undo the grace of God? And the promise of Jesus who said, when you believe in me, I give you eternal life? Absolutely not. And if we think that it does, then it begs the question, what other 
sins might undo the promise of God who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And as you've heard me say many times, he didn't say, I give you eternal life and you might not perish, or I give you the possibility of eternal life, or I give you the potential for. He says, I give you eternal life. When do you get it? At the moment you believe the gospel. So if anything could happen after that moment, when you've done what the Bible says you must do 160 times, if anything could happen after that that meant you ended up in hell, Jesus is a liar. He didn't really mean it when he said, I give you eternal life. He said, apparently what he must have meant is I give you the prospect of eternal life or I give you conditional eternal life never says that it's a present possession in fact he he says it so strongly for example in John 5 24 he says when you believe in me you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment the passage I just quoted I give you eternal life and you shall never perish John 10 28 is actually a double negative in the Greek language it's you shall no never perish or it's almost like you shall never perish forever. So it's like doubly emphasizing the fact that you will never end up in hell. And, um, and if there was something that we could do that somehow would uh, keep us out of heaven or send us to hell, then think about it. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, have to die on the cross? What role did he have to play? if it's all ultimately up to us anyway. And yet that doctrine of, of works goes on and on and on and on. People are just, uh, it's very difficult for people to get their hands around this notion of grace. Grace is, uh, is so foundational to God's entire story. I'm working on a message, uh, uh, I'm working on several messages right now, which I'm so excited because when I have multiple things that are, that I have to work on, I don't. I can sit down at any moment, and I know I'm going to be motivated to work on one of them. When I'm, when my next conference is not for six months from now, and I'm mainly focused on Hebrews, you know, let's say, um, you know, there are days when you feel like studying Hebrews, and there are days when you're not particularly motivated to study Hebrews. I still have to study it, but boy, now I just which which message am I going to work on today? Kind of a thing. So I've been working on a message that I'm going to do in Tulsa uh, called. Uh, Israel and God's plan of the ages. And I'm tracing how Israel really is a picture of grace all the way back from Genesis all the way through. And, uh, and it's just amazing to me how really the theme of grace begins, as we've talked about before, in the garden. You know, It was gracious for God to provide a covering for Adam and Eve after they sinned. That was gracious. He didn't have to do that, right? They were helpless. They didn't know what, it, what death was or what it meant to kill an animal and skin an animal. I mean, I've skinned quite a few bucks in my day. They didn't have a clue what that was because to them the animals were just part of the family. There was no sin. There was no death. There was, and so here they've been awakened to their sinfulness because they sinned and they are aware of their nakedness. They needed a covering and what happens? God gives it to them. That's grace. That's the picture of grace right there. And you see grace throughout the Bible. Sometimes we, we inadvertently give the impression that somehow the New Testament's about grace and the Old Testament's about law. That's not really the best way to say it. The entire Bible is about grace. The New Testament emphasizes grace and, and gives us the consummate picture of grace at Calvary 
when the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. It's kind of like grace in high definition. But grace didn't come into existence with the time of Christ. God has always been a God of grace. And conversely, the Old Testament emphasizes the nation of Israel and the law, primarily. I mean, think about it. From Exodus to the end of you know, the Old Testament, it's all about Israel. It's all about Israel. Uh, so, so grace is so central, and, and it's uh, always been our, you know, my passion and my heart to defend grace when it's impugned. And it's constantly being impugned. Uh, there are people who uh, just don't like the emphasis on the freeness of grace, that we are saved by free grace. Free grace. Yeah. Was Saul saved? I believe Saul is absolutely in heaven today. So, Because again, the Bible doesn't say you have to end well to get to heaven. That's a Calvinist teaching called the perseverance of the saints. Calvinists teach if you don't persevere to the end in good works, if you fall away and never return, you're going to hell. You were never saved. Now, they say you were never saved. They don't think you can lose your salvation. They just come in through the back door and say, well, you never had it, right? The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible never says we have to end well. And the Bible is full of examples. Saul is one of them of, of believers who did not end well. Um, you know, John the Baptist died in a lonely prison cell questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. And he's in heaven today. Um, Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.12, even if we are faithless, meaning no faith at all, God is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. That's what first, 2 Timothy 2.12 says. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Remember, when you believe the gospel, in that moment in time when faith meets the gospel, you trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, you are regenerated. The result of your faith is that you are born again. Of course, Calvinists teach it the other way around. They teach that faith is an involuntary, compulsory response that you have no choice in. And regeneration happens first, and then you are forced to believe. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's just the opposite. You believe, and that's the instrumental cause of your regeneration. So when you believe the gospel, you become born again. Your spiritual DNA changes at that moment. You are now a child of God. John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Faith results in a new identity, a new position. We're now in Christ. We're now part of the family of God. We've been adopted into the family. So in the same way that nothing can ever prevent one of my children from being genetically connected to me, there's nothing they can do even if they abandon our family or run off and we never see them again and they disown us, a simple DNA test will prove they're a Hickson. Right? In the same way, spiritually, when we become part of the family of God, nothing we can do after that can take our identity away. We are in Christ permanently. Paul says in Ephesians, we are sealed until the day of redemption. So nothing can change it. Yeah. You may have mentioned it before, but is there... Is there a specific object of the faith of an Old Testament believer? Uh, did they have to believe that the Messiah was coming? Was, was that part of it, or was it just that they believed that there was one God 
and that it was the God of Jacob and Isaac and all that. It's not, it was, so the question is about the object of faith, and I get into this in chapter 3, I think it is of getting the gospel wrong. While salvation from Genesis to the, eter- to the new heavens and the new earth is always by grace through faith, by definition and logically, the object of faith changes over the progress of revelation. And so it's not just about Old Testament saints because, for example, take Noah or take even Abraham before the nation of Israel. They didn't believe in a Messiah because that hadn't been revealed yet. God had not unveiled in his plan of the ages the concept of a Messiah for Israel, a son of David, right? So over time, and we can look through the pages of Scripture and go back and see this, the object of faith changes. But consistent throughout is this concept of grace that I'm trusting in God to save me and I cannot save myself. So Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. His faith was that only God could do this and he, and in so doing he was justified. Um, so it kind of depends on what era we're in. But one thing is crystal clear based on the authority of Scripture is that in this present church age, the content of faith, the saving content, that which must be believed in order to have eternal life, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for our sins. That's spelled out again and again and again. 1 Corinthians 15 is a classic example. And I talked about this in a separate message where I went through, it might have been in here, I don't remember, uh, where I went through and showed you how the gospel is made up of words, of specific content, and it's when you believe, hear and believe those words, Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You've got to hear the gospel and believe it. What do you have to hear? Specific information. What is that information? The Bible says it's that Jesus Christ died and rose again for our sins. So, uh, and by the way, the Again, in the progress of Revelation. Does everybody understand what I mean by the progress of Revelation? So progress means the advancement of time. Revelation means God's unveiling of information. Right now, we have God's complete revelation in the Word of God, everything we need for life and godliness. But after Christ returns, or really even after the rapture, we enter into a new dispensation, or the transition into a new dispensation. The church age is over, is what I'm saying. The church age ends with the rapture. And so the content of faith during the tribulation period is going to take on a more Jewish flavor. They're, going to not, they're not only going to believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who, who paid for their sins, but they're going to have to believe that He is the long-awaited national Messiah of Israel. That's part of the content of faith. Today, a person can get saved and have no concept of a future literal kingdom. There are a lot of biblical doctrines that are absolutely true and very important, but they don't have to be believed in order to be saved, right? That Jesus is coming again in bodily form to take the throne and the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and to reign with a rod of iron in perfect peace and justice is fundamental. It's foundational. It's important. But I didn't understand that as a six-year-old boy. I just understood that Jesus took my place on the cross, died and rose again, and I'm trusting him to save me. So, so but once the rapture happens, the, the, notice the terminology changes. Now, in the book of Revelation, it's the gospel of the kingdom. We don't see that terminology now. It's the gospel. But it becomes the gospel of the kingdom. And so the, the kingly aspect of Christ becomes more central in presenting the gospel 
during the tribulation period. And then it'll change again during the millennium. Because remember, uh, after Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation and takes the throne, at first, everyone on earth uh, will be a believer. Because all the unbelievers at Christ's second coming are cast into the lake of fire, or the everlasting fire. So, uh, but eventually, those that survived the tribulation, that were believers, or that inhabit the kingdom in their bodily form, they will have children, and those children will be born in sin like every human being is, and they will need to be saved. And so, uh, during the thousand years, the evangelistic enterprise for those who are born during the millennium and need to be saved is not going to be pointing back to the cross, per se. It's going to be pointing toward the guy in the White House over there in Jerusalem that gave the State of the World address last night. Because he's reigning, and you're, you want to be saved? Trust him. Remember that guy? The one that you just, you know, the, the one that his uh, press secretary uh, just gave an announcement. And by the way, she'll never say, I'm going to circle back to you. She's she going to have the answer right then, because Jesus is the all-knowing and omniscient, right? So you trust in him. He'll be there with us in bodily form. And so people want to be saved? Trust that guy. <laughs> trust the king of the world. So the object of faith is, uh, is something that theologically is, is important to understand, and it's, it's an interesting thing to discuss. But for our purposes in the present age, the evangelistic enterprise is quite simple. Trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, and you can be forgiven and have eternal life. It's that simple. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ. Uh, so... Uh, so, good question. Other other questions uh, as we think through this idea of grace. Yeah. Your understanding of grace, has it changed over the last 30 years? Has my understanding of grace changed over the last 30 years? Um, I don't think my fundamental understanding of the meaning of grace has changed in 30 years. It's definitely changed in my lifetime, but in the last 30 years. But what has happened is, as I've studied the Word and enmeshed myself in the Word, I've grown to appreciate grace more and more and more. In the same way that you know, I, I still know the Lord, He's my Savior, but the more we study His Word, the more we fall in love with Him, the more we know Him. And if you remember my my, one of my foundational paradigms for the Christian life is the know, trust, obey paradigm. And the more we know the Lord, the more we'll trust the Lord. The more we trust the Lord, the more we obey the Lord. And that's a growing process. So I would say I've, I've grown to appreciate grace and value grace, but it's a pretty basic definition, which is undeserved favor, undeserved gift. That's the meaning of grace. And I don't. I definitely, in my lifetime, you know, grew up in a in an environment where, of course, I was in a Christian home, so I heard the gospel and I believed the gospel. But I was influenced by a lot of uh, teachers who taught a lot of these mistakes that we're talking about in this series right now. And so it wasn't until I actually had graduated from college and really started studying it that I began to understand ultimately that grace is free. I thought that grace was somehow, I mean, I knew, I knew that Jesus paid my price and that he was my savior and so forth. And I would sing Jesus paid it all, you know, in our Baptist church. But I still 
held on to though that false uh, mentality that somehow I had to prove it, that if I wasn't living right, I maybe never was saved. You know, kind of like the article that I gave out last week about commitment-based gospel. I was heavily influenced by that. But once I really learned to let the Scripture speak where they speak and, and not bring my interpretation to the text, you know, like we talked about last week, about repentance, you know. I grew up being taught, boy, if you don't repent of your sin, if you're not willing to turn from your sin, you can't go to heaven. And it never sounded right to me because I knew, I, I, I was constantly left thinking and wondering, well, boy, as a six-year-old boy on the top bunk of my bed, do I, did, I, did I volitionally turn from my sin or what? And I just sort of, I knew I was saved. I, I knew, you know, that, you know, I, I trusted in Christ. And so I never really doubted. Uh, but you know, I always had this check in my mind about, you know, did I really repent of sin? So, well, then when you look at the scriptures, you found out repentance, as we said last week, just means a change of mind. And it has nothing to do with turning from sin. You can turn from sin all day. You're not going to heaven if, unless you trust in Christ. And you can trust in Christ and not turn from your sin. I mean, how many of you sinned this week? Raise your hand. Okay, are you all going to hell? I hope not. Not if you've trusted in Christ, right? You're not on the authority of Scripture. So turn from sin is, is not biblical in terms of how to get to heaven. It's not even quantifiable. It's too subjective. If that, let's say for the devil's argument, uh, devil's advocate, that it is required to turn from your sin to go to heaven. Well, how much? How far? How many? How often? I mean, what does that even mean? How, what does that look like? If that's a requirement to go to heaven, I'd sure like to know what it means exactly so I can make sure I do it, right? And uh, whatever else it may mean, I don't think continuing to sin uh, meets the criteria. And we all just confess that, look, we sin. Um, I was on a radio show yesterday, actually, with Dr. Andy Woods. We was a two-hour and 15-minute two Q&A with a host, and the questions had been sent in ahead of time, and we got into this uh, very issue of of this notion of, you know, if my eternal destiny is somehow based upon how much I sin or how willing I am to sin or how much I like sin. And by the way, let's just be honest, we like sin or we wouldn't do it. You know, if we, if we didn't like sin, it wouldn't be a problem, right? It's the fact that we like it that's the problem. And it's, it's, the, it's the shiny red apple, you know. I mean, if, if it had been a, a big onion tree, I don't think we'd have been in the predicament we're in. But it was a luscious red, I mean, I'm speaking proverbially, we don't know what the fruit was, but you get my point. Um, so, but we, we, we talked about how that, you know, nothing we can do can change what Christ did at the moment we trusted him. It's a transaction that takes place. He says, if you do X, I'll do Y. What is X? Believe the gospel. What is Y? Give you eternal life. And he either meant it or he didn't. And because he's God and he cannot lie, this is what we talked about yesterday on the show, then, uh, you know, to say otherwise is to basically accuse him of being a liar, right? So, so you know, uh, my understanding of grace 
is, has deepened, it's enriched, it, I've become more passionate about it. I've, become, I've come to realize how central it is to the Christian life, not just to that moment of conversion, but to our, the, the lens through which we see all of life. And I touched on this just briefly Sunday, and I don't think I really drove the, home, drove the point home as well as I could have. Maybe I'll try to reiterate it again in, this, in part two this Sunday. But if your inclination is that somehow you have to do something to be saved or, and this is more often the case in our circles, do something to prove you really are, if that's your inclination, then that's going to carry over into the way you live your Christian life. And you're going to constantly think of God in terms of this retributive relationship that every time something bad happens, I must be being punished and is if I'm doing if the good things are happening it must be because I'm so good you know that mentality and and it's taken it's taken years to strip that mentality away that God is not a God of retribution he's a God of grace so the the method of justification or salvation is the same as the method of sanctification or spiritual growth and that's by grace through faith so once I understood that, then, then I can view the trials and tests of life and the suffering of life uh, through the lens of God's grace. And His grace is sufficient. It's, it's right out of 2 Corinthians 12 where, where Paul says, you know, when I am weak, He is strong. And His grace is sufficient for me. So that's where I, I would say, yeah, I think, you know, in, in a sense, my understanding has broadened. But I, I've never, it's not like it's such a complex definition that it takes 30 years to figure out what it means. We know what it means, undeserved favor. But appreciating the value of it and, and learning to live under God's grace uh, you know, is, is definitely something that has grown. So, yeah? So, Peter denied Christ three times. Right. Judas did what he did. Where did they end up? So Judas we know is in hell. The Bible tells us that. Peter's absolutely in heaven. No question. In fact, he died a martyr. Uh, not that that's necessary. He could have died one second after the third denial, and he'd be in heaven today because he was a believer. Right? So that's, the, that's the, the lunacy of this Calvinistic teaching of perseverance. They will look at a snapshot of people's lives. I saw him go into a bar. I saw him with another woman. I sir, saw her cussing, you know, or, or whatever. I saw her doing drugs. There's no way they could be a Christian. And I'm sitting here thinking, what would they have thought if they'd have been a bystander when they saw Peter deny Christ not once, not twice, but three times, and then curse him? And yet here's a guy who you know, was clearly a believer and became you know, the, 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 first the pastor of the first Baptist church of Jerusalem. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so all of us, if you pick any particular snapshot of our life, can look like unbelievers. Well, that's a fact. It's a fact biblically. And we've looked at some of these passages like Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Galatians 5, where it contrasts the fruit of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. It's a fact biblically, but, but it's a fact Intuitively, it's a fact anecdotally. Because we sin, right? 
The fact that we sin shows that we still have a sin nature. We still struggle. And sometimes we grieve the Spirit. We quench the Spirit. We don't walk in the Spirit. We don't yield to the Spirit. And when we do, there is no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer cannot also commit if he or she is walking in the flesh. Yeah. Would that mean then that Peter, when he denied Christ, he was denying as a sin but to protect himself, but he wasn't truly denying his faith in Christ? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't Necessarily. I mean, we don't. The question is, does it mean? Did that mean? Are we saying that Peter denied Christ just to protect himself in the moment, but he wasn't really denying Christ? No, it doesn't mean that. You can really deny Christ and still go to heaven. Absolutely, the Bible. Te- that's what Paul says in Second Timothy two twelve. You can be have no faith whatsoever. Every bit of your faith in the Lord can be gone, but God will not deny one of His own family. So we're not saved because we believe and keep on believing. Because if that were true, first of all, the Bible says just the opposite. But let's say, let's run with that. Let's say you have to believe and keep on believing until you die. How could you ever know that you're saved? Right? Because you don't know what tomorrow... Do you know the future? I don't. We don't. Right? So how, how do I know if maybe 20 years from now, I might be led astray by some false teaching or I might become have some tragedy in life because of this fallen world in which we live and I become bitter and angry toward God and abandon the faith. History is replete with people who are shipwrecked in the faith because they've abandoned the faith. And that's what the whole book of Hebrews, by the way, is about. It was about a group of Christians who were being intensely persecuted by Nero in the late 60s AD, including being burned at the stake, families raped and pillaged, and they were contemplating abandoning the faith and saying, I want to go back to Judaism because that was still kind of a safe haven in cahoots with Rome. And, and, and they did not want to associate anymore with Christ or Christianity or the church. And many of them did that. And the book of Hebrews says when you do that, you're forfeiting your rewards. You're losing out on incredible blessings even here and now. You're setting a bad example for other believers, but you're going to still be in heaven because God cannot deny himself. So then I have another question. Yeah. Then in the Bible when it says, if you deny me, I will deny you, where does that leave us? So it, uh, it's in that same passage in 2 Timothy 2.12. So let's... So the question is about, if you deny me, I will deny you. It's, it's actually in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, starting out in verse 11. This is where context is so critical. And, and we have been so guilty through the years of proof texting. What do we mean by proof texting? Taking a verse, sort of isolating it from the context, putting it on a bumper sticker or a poster or committing it to memory, and it sort of takes on a meaning of its own instead of the context. And as I've mentioned, you know, if you take a text out of context, all you're left with is a con. So tech context is critical, right? Um, so what is, he, what is he saying? This is a faithful saying, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Talking there about in the same way that Paul does in Romans 6 about how when we place our faith in him, we are dying to sin and we have been made alive in Christ. If we endure, notice verse 12, it's all one sentence. If we, or one thought, it's actually or a contrasting parallelism. It's a, this is a, you notice how in your English Bible it's set apart a little bit different from the normal flow? 
I don't know what versions you have. If you have the NIV, it might not reflect it. But the NASB, the New King James, the King James, they all sort of set it off in our English Bible. That's because in Greek, this is sort of a poetic section as well. These are stanzas, and verse 12 is contrasting parallelism. So what does he say? If we endure, we shall reign with him. It's the same thing that, Paul, that uh, the writer of Hebrews was saying. So some believers are going to get to reign, like the disciples were told they will reign on 12 thrones. Remember Jesus told them that? Uh, also in Luke 19, Jesus says, speaking there in a parable, uh, but in reference to all believers, that those who serve well are going to be put in charge of more stewardship in the kingdom. Ten cities, five cities, whatever. So what he's saying is, if we endure, if we don't deny him, if we don't give up the faith, if we don't apostatize, guess what? We're going to reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. What? What's the context? Entrance into heaven? Is that what it says? No, he'll deny us the right to reign. So if you endure, you reign. If you don't endure, you don't reign. That's the, that's the meaning of that verse. And then, as if it weren't clear enough already, verse 13 settles the issue once and for all when he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So that would be in direct opposition to what he had just said if, in fact, verse 12 is saying, well, if you deny the Lord, you don't get to go to heaven. Wait a minute, I thought you said, even if we're faithless, meaning we've lost all faith in God, we still get to go to heaven because you're a faithful covenant-keeping God. So, uh, there, there's nothing in Scripture that says we must keep on believing until the end of our life. Now, obviously there are serious consequences. It's called apostasy, and it's a big deal. But, again, that cannot keep us out of heaven because our DNA has changed. We're adopted in the family of God, sealed until the day of redemption, uh, born from above, names written in the Lamb's book of life. All of that happens instantaneously at the moment we trust Christ. But just think about if you, if you go down into that rabbit hole, that quagmire, what it would mean if in somehow we had to keep on believing. First of all, it completely obliterates assurance. We can never have assurance because we're not... We don't, we're not prophetic. We can't tell the future. We're not fortune tellers. So all I know is right now I believe the Lord, but I don't know whether I'm going to believe the Lord 10 years from now. So how can I know if I'm going to ultimately end up in heaven if the fact that somewhere in my journey I deny the Lord sends me to hell? Because I don't know what my journey holds, right? So it's just it, it's logically uh, impossible, and it's theologically unbiblical for sure um, I mean and just think about it logically uh, what is belief uh, we're, I think I'm going to get into that in our next section which we may or may not get to tonight which is fine I, we're having some great instructive dialogue but faith is inherently intellectual I don't believe something with my foot I believe it with my mind right and we're going to see in scripture that mind and heart are used interchangeably of the same thing so this notion of somehow you, you, get, you can believe something here and believe it here, but unless you believe it here, it doesn't count. You have to believe it here, like the mind and the heart are constantly battling each other. That's not biblical at all. The mind is the, and the heart are both used. First of all, both of those are physical uh, concepts. The brain is an organ. The heart is an organ. And so it's really a metaphor. And the, it, within the immaterial part of man, the mind and heart are the seat of our emotions and our will and all of that. 
So uh, I forget where I was going with that, but let's just say, you know, you, belief is of necessity an intellectual thing. You, you, no matter what you believe, it generates from here, right? Do you believe the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl? We're, that's a thought process, right? You think about something. You hear information, and then you cognitively decide, am I going to believe it or not? Which is what faith is all about, right? That's at the moment, you know, you hear the gospel, you can either believe it or reject it. How do you make that choice? With your mind. It's the only way you can make it. Now, of course, Calvinists would teach that you don't make that choice. God made it for you, and you're just forced to kind of express it somehow. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. We, we can reject God. Yeah? Um, Bruce says he cannot deny himself. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> says children of God as God's children, we are in him and he is in us. Right. And that's where denying himself is if we... Right. And he can't do that. No, he can't. We're in him and he is in him. We're in, Sally's saying we're in him, he is in him. That's what he means by he cannot deny himself. It'd be like I cannot deny that one of my children is my, my child. I mean, I can deny, I could, humanly speaking, but it's not a fact in dispute. A simple scientific DNA test will settle the issue, right? That these are not ambiguous things. So that's why they have paternity tests and paternity suits, and it's, it's a simple scientific determination. So, so, you know, but God cannot deny us because spiritually we are part of the family. We are, you know, co-heirs with Christ. And to the same extent that Christ will inherit the kingdom, we will inherit the kingdom because we're co-heirs with Christ. But back to this, this I want to hold on to those thoughts for just a second because I'm, I'm already kind of losing my train of thought a couple times now. I don't know what it is, but... Um, but I want to stay laser focused on this notion of, of, of faith and intellectual faith. So I'm trying to illustrate that the false teaching that says you've got to believe and keep on believing all the way up to the moment you die or else, you know, if any point in between you turn away from the Lord and deny him and apostatize, then you're not saved. It can't possibly be true. So first of all, we, we need to establish uh, that faith is intellectual. Having established that, uh, you know, and, we, and we'll get to some of these passages in a second, then the next question becomes, what do you do with people who suffer from mind-altering problems? Is a godly saint who's a believer and then gets dementia or Alzheimer's and can no longer even tell you who Jesus is? Or you say, hey, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? And they go, aren't the tulips pretty? I mean, they, they can't even intellectually do any. Are they going to hell because they no longer believe? In, of course not, right? That's an easy one. All right, let me give you another one. Let's say a godly saint has trusted in Christ and him alone for salvation, gets hit in the head with a softball, suffers a traumatic brain injury, and now no longer can even think logically or rationally. Are they going to hell because they cannot articulate faith? No. Well, we are a holistic being. And just as physical injuries or physiological diseases, such as Alzheimer's, cannot undo what Christ did, neither can our own volition. Right? And that's the reason that the Bible never says, 
Whoever believes in me and keeps on believing has eternal life. It's whoever believes in me. So that, that's why you, you've heard me say this phrase, and it's, it's not just a catchphrase that I tend to repeat. It's, it's, it's become a phrase I repeat because it's so foundational, that we are saved at a punctiliar moment in time. If you think of your life on a timeline, you're going along, you're lost, and if you were to die, you'd go to hell. You meet Jesus, you place your faith in Him, and in that precise moment, you've changed. Now you're a believer, you're part of the family of God. And everything afterwards on that linear timeline that goes forward, now you're in Christ, you're, you're positionally righteous, you're part of the family of God, nothing can change that. And down that road, if you suffer a physical injury, if you catch a disease, or even if you have a life experience that is so traumatic to you that you, you give up, and you do exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us not to do. And you say, I'm done. God, I'm so angry at you, I'm done. And you turn your back on God and walk away. Guess what? He cannot deny himself. Because we're part of the family of God. And thank God for that. right? So, um, so yeah, great question. And great. Uh, there are several other passages, uh, too, that are kind of sometimes misunderstood to mean that well, if you, if you cross this line, you're going to hell. And that's just not the case. The only reason someone goes to hell is because they've never believed in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So I want to be fair. We've got you, then you, then you. But really, I like y'all best. <laughs> What's that? Uh, yes, I am. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Perhaps to help better understand say yes to to Jesus, accept him by faith as our personal savior, that a miraculous transformation takes place within our bodies. The scripture says at that very instant that God puts his seal on that decision. Yeah. And that's that seal is for a better term, his absolute word. That's right. And the scripture also tells us that at that same moment that we are indwelt by, we are filled by the Holy Spirit. We, we become now the living temple of the living God. So yeah. there's a tremendous transformation yeah. that takes place at that moment of salvation. And we are now the temple. We are the part of the body of Christ on this planet until the church is raptured. Absolutely, you very well said. Uh, we, I wouldn't say filled because that's something for believers, but absolutely he takes up residence in us. We are baptized into his body, 1 Corinthians 12, sealed. And the passage that you uh, referred to, let's just read it or just listen as I read it in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. He says, um, In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to... Uh, to the riches of His grace. Talked a little bit about grace tonight, haven't we? Which He made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him we also obtained and inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel of his will, 
that we who trusted in Christ, so the predestination here, don't be confused, that's not to heaven or hell, it's to our purpose for those who believe. God predestined that those who believe would serve a certain purpose. But he says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now listen to this. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So there it is again. You hear the gospel, then you believe the gospel. The gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That is, until this mortal puts on immortality and we go to heaven, to the praise of his glory. So, you're right. Lewis Berry Chafer famously listed some 33 things that happen instantaneously the moment we trust Christ. It's all of these things we've been talking about. Justification, reconciliation, redemption, Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Adopted into the family of God. Positionally placed in Christ. Declared righteous. You know, all of these things. And so, they all are coming at the same theological points uh, from the same you know, undergirding principle, but they come at it from a little bit different way. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, all of these other things we're talking about, even denying Christ, and I totally get that in some people's minds, that's like the ultimate sin. I mean, it's like committing suicide, right? Somehow we've categorized certain sins as being so bad that they can obliterate grace and undo everything the Bible says about our eternal security. And one of those is denying Christ. One of those is committing suicide. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. It, it, just think about the implications of that. If there are any things that God might say, nope, I didn't really mean it. If you do that, then I changed my mind then it begs the question, wow, what else might there be? And really, is my, you know, covetousness or my jealousy or my lust or the, the hidden sins of the heart, is that really any less offensive to God than the so-called big sins? Really? So, so, but all of those things are behaviors. And if you remember what we talked about, we talked about how we are in Christ positionally, which is what we've been saying that it's permanent nothing can change it it's our spiritual dna the minute you trust christ you are placed in christ the spirit takes up residence in your life and christ takes up residence by the way and that's what uh, sally said we are in him he is in us and nothing can change that that's called perfect righteousness or positional righteousness but then there's the reality of everyday life on this earth and we don't always live like the person in Christ that we are. That's called practical righteousness or sanctification. So the goal, and again, this is review, but it's very important. The goal is for our practice in life to reflect our position in Christ. That's the goal. But when it doesn't, and rest assured, as long as we're topside this earth, there will be times when it doesn't <laughs> because of the flesh. When it doesn't, it doesn't mean we're not in Christ. Just means we're not acting like we're in Christ. And denying Christ for whatever reason, whether you got hit by a softball, you got a disease, or you were tragically impacted by some emotional experience that caused your heart to turn against the Lord, none of that behavior, none of that practice can undo our position in Christ. Does that make sense? So I think it was, did I say you're next? Yeah, go ahead. Just a really quick comment. It's, and because we're... Our focus has been 
you still you still get in. Um, I I even think I love the the focus of of um, our worship and testimony service and that it was about humility. And so I just wanted to just take a little glimpse at the the concept that in fact sometimes these denial moments, these like utter and complete and obviously bad situations and failures are what make us humble and and so a lot of times it's right after you failed you feel God building something on you um, like he built the church on the rock yeah that he called Peter which is really just the rock of himself right is the rock of Peter's declaration right right well well I'm speaking about Jesus himself is the cornerstone yeah so when he says on this rock I build my church he's saying I'm building it on my own finished work which is grace to you and so but I just I just thought not only do we still get through it not only are we still acceptable before God he actually uses those really big failure moments a lot of times to elicit the humility we need to be more sanctified because a lot of times we do these little things and we're like eh, and we're not really yeah. convicted and um, and then I think those sometimes the big the biggies can really alter our course yeah the, really be sanctifying. that's well said the illustration that I used Sunday if you remember was about the crash test dummies that God uses tests and trials of life to refine us and to to show us our weak points. And so, you know, bam, we hit the wall and we realize, oh, I thought I'd never do that, but I did. And now, you know, I've got to confess that and I've got to kind of, you know, learn from that and grow from that. So, yeah, there is a, a sustaining grace that is operative in our lives that is all about humility and life experiences. And I made the comment Sunday that, you know, the most impactive, influential people in my life and my family's life through the years have been those who were touched by life's tragedies. You know, it's, I remind people all the time, there's no, this concept that, that really comes out of puritanical thinking, uh, and, you know, and, and obviously we praise God for the Puritans who came over here at Plymouth Rock and helped establish religious freedom, uh, but theologically, it, they were very legalistic. And so we, that has, that, the concept of legalism goes all the way back to Galatians, Paul's first letter that he ever wrote, right? This notion that we've got to dot our I's and cross our T's to be acceptable to God. And so that's just really a, a notion that is hard to shed in, in, our, in our thinking. But this idea that, that the, the good Christian family are, are those perfect people, you know, husband, wife, two kids, a dog, two cars, a white picket fence. You know, that's that's the, the picture that we have of good Christians. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. I mean, think about it. Even Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God in his humanity, had a stepfather. I mean, really? You ever stop to think about that? Joseph wasn't his biological father, for lack of a better word. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he he he... And yet he had brothers, lots of them. So they were his stepbrothers, in a manner of speaking. So he, even he, the ultimate son of God, wasn't from a stereotypical perfect life. And so, homeless. and not to mention homeless, he has nowhere to lay his head, and he rejected in his hometown, and all that. So, so I think we need to recognize that um, 
life, like I said Sunday, Proverbs fifteen thirty one, life's a great teacher, and it's the extent to which we abide the lessons of life and respond appropriately with the right attitude to those lessons that really determines our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity. And I think we're going to be surprised when we get to the beam of judgment at just who is rewarded and commended for their faithfulness. It, it may not be all the people that seem to, to, to have it all together. So I, I've gotten to where I, you know, and I've been in a lot of different roles, administrative roles in organizations and schools and, and, and so forth. And I, I'm always a little skeptical of people in interviews that have it all together. But someone who kind of bears all and says, you know what, I made some major mistakes in my life. Here's what happened. Here's what I learned from them. That kind of gets my attention. And I go, okay, they've, they've been tested, right? So now we've got some more questions, and that's great. Uh, Ann, you, you changed your mind. I, you got up and left. I thought you finally said, I, enough's enough. I'm tired of waiting. He's ignored me for too long. I'm done with this. But then you came back in. So I thought, well, thank the Lord she's not mad at me. <laughs> so did you forget your question? No, but I, I don't have time, so I'm not going to... Oh, come on. No, got, no one's in a hurry. I'm, I've got all the time in the world. Okay, well, I don't, I, I don't know if I, have, if I have the words to do this, okay? I'll Understand. Try. Sure, give it a shot. But it's, it's, um, it's about my daughter, and uh, she was, she was uh, saved. And then uh, her, 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 his divorce, the divorce came, and she got away, away from that. She got really away from that, and um, and and in fact, she has kind of really, really, really uh, gone from that, and and uh, he, she. She doesn't think that that's that that's uh, real. I mean, that that's she thinks she's lost or just didn't didn't and I, I, I don't know. But and I can't talk to her. She she will not talk to me about that. So um uh that's the the kind of thing that that um you know I'm I'm going through. Yeah, and so it understandably when we and you're not alone. No. A lot of Christian families have prodigal children, yeah. and that's heart wrenching. And you know, all we can do is rest on the promise of Scripture. In most cases, the family can attest to the person's profession of faith because in a lot of cases they were there or they understood or heard their testimony for years that they've trusted in Christ. And yet later on they may abandon the faith or deny Christ. All you can do is rest in the promise of Scripture and say that, you know what? Uh, I hope they come back. We're praying for them to return to the fold. We're praying for a change of mind, repentance. We're changing for the Spirit, praying for the Spirit of God to just get a hold of them and just draw them back. But even if they were to die in that state of rebellion, we're going to hang on to the hope of Scripture that they, they've trusted Christ, and they'll be in heaven someday. And, you know, you think about 6,000 years of human history and how many believers there have been, even before the church age, they were believers, they weren't Christians, but they, were, they weren't called Christians, but they were believers. I mean, the history is, is full of people who didn't finish well. 
Now, that's never a good thing. It's always tragic. But um, those who think, and this is really the point that I, that, I, that I guess I really want to drive home tonight, that I've been around in my life in different ministries, and I'm dealing with it even right now, people that don't understand grace because they're so wrapped up in legalism. They're more concerned with how long the skirts are and whether you're listening to the right kind of music and whether you're wearing the right kind of clothes and whether you're doing all this Christian stuff than they are to really understand grace. And they, they don't like that grace is free and they don't like that people are promoting the grace of God because they mistakenly think that grace somehow engenders sin or encourages sin, which is absurd. It's like I said, you know, seeing the life preservers on a cruise ship doesn't make you want to go jump into the ocean, right? Grace is, is a security blanket. It's, you know, I've, I've used the illustration for many years that, uh, and I probably used it in here somewhere along the way already, uh, that when they were building the, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, uh, the story is that at one point they had to cease construction because so many construction workers were plummeting to their death. And they were slipping and falling. And so they finally called it off and, and said, we've got to fix this. we got to do something. So they built this massive protection net underneath the working area. And as the story goes, from that point on, not a single worker slipped off the bridge. <laughs> Why? Because they were confident. They had confidence. So grace is just the opposite. It doesn't make us sin. Oh, I'm God's grace is good, so I can just go do whatever I want. That's the impression some people give. That just shows they don't understand grace. They don't understand the meaning of grace. Grace does not encourage sin. Grace actually encourages gratitude and confidence, and it recognizes who we are in Christ. And it, it, we're so beholden to our Heavenly Father that we, that we want to serve Him. You know what encourages sin? The sin nature. <laughs> Right? Emphasizing the fundamental doctrine of God's Word, grace, does not encourage sin. I mean, how ludicrous is that? And yet, that's a misnomer that people say. Well, I don't like preaching free grace because it just encourages people to sin. No, it doesn't. You know, does having a fire extinguisher in your kitchen cabinet under the sink encourage you to start a fire in your house? Nope. Grace is there as our security. And, you know, in terms of assurance... Uh, an analogy that I used yesterday on this radio interview that I think is, is helpful is, you know, we cannot and must not look at subjective matters such as our behavior to determine whether we're saved. Because by nature, that's going to cause us to doubt all the time. Why? Because we sin sometimes. We're not always faithful as believers. And so if my assurance of salvation is determined by my behavior, I'm going to lack assurance. Our assurance is based on the empirical, objective promise of Christ, who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So we've got to stop getting our eyes on the behavior of others and hastily concluding they're hellbound, and we've got to stop looking at our own behavior to think, am I really saved? Yeah, you're saved. You know what? You're saved because of the birthright of every believer is assurance. Jesus said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So the analogy that I use is like when you go to the refrigerator and you've got an old, uh, you know, uh, plastic tub of, uh, let's say, I don't know, uh, sour cream or something. And, and you're thinking, I don't know how long this has been in there. And maybe it's spoiled, right? 
uh, or cottage cheese, let's say. That's maybe a better example. Because I've always wondered, if it's already sour, can it really get bad? I don't know. So let's go with cottage cheese. So you pick up this thing of cottage cheese, and you go, man, I didn't see that hidden behind all this other junk on the third shelf. I wonder if it's still good. The first thing you do is you look at the date, right? And, and you notice, oh, it's still got a couple of days. It's probably good. But that's not the definitive ruling on the matter, is it? You pull the lid off and you smell what's inside and you get this wretched smell and you go, nope, it's, go it's bad. And the same thing is true of our Christian life. It's not what's on the outside that determines definitively whether we're saved or not. Because on the outside, there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. You know what determines whether we're saved? It's what's on the inside. And if you've trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. He promised to seal you until the day of redemption and you're a believer. So rest in that. Stop looking at subjective indications and trust in the promise of Christ. Right? Now, it seems like there was at least one, yes, at least one and maybe quick. two more. This is quick. You know, you're fine. Um, growing up in the Catholic Church, they would talk about the age of accountability, which if I recall correctly, I think it was seven years old, which is why you received your first communion. And I know, like you say, you accepted Christ, and it was definitely, you definitely did that at six years old. Does the Bible say anything about age of accountability or do we just trust that Christ is all-knowing he knows each person's situation because if somebody dies at 13 and they haven't accepted Christ you know where so that's a great great question so the question is about the age of accountability uh, it's also a t theological terminology that is very prevalent in the Baptist uh, denomination um, so you know the label is a little bit misleading because it sort of implies, as you're asking, that somehow we can cite chapter and verse where the Lord says, Thus saith the Lord, up to this age, whatever that Bible says, you're safe, but after that, you're in trouble. That's not uh, what the Bible teaches, and that's not what's implied by that terminology, at least in the Baptist church. So we have to answer the question from a theological perspective. There's one and only one condition mentioned hundreds of times from cover to cover for someone to be saved. And that is believing in the gospel, in the case of the New Testament church, believing in Christ, right? So uh, the, uh, what we've come to call the age of accountability is basically the age at which you are intellectually capable of hearing, Romans 10, 17, and believing the gospel. You know, if you're six months old, you don't have the intellectual faculty. That's why I spent so much time earlier talking about how faith is inherently intellectual, to believe the gospel. So that age may be different for different people, but at some point in your journey, you reach an age, and it's typically pretty young, where you understand sin, you understand the need for a Savior. You understand that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You understand that He's risen Savior, that He's the Son of God. That he, in other words, that He's not just like any other man. He's unique. Uh, and, and you understand faith. Faith is so simple a child can understand it. That's why Jesus repeatedly said, Suffer the little children to come to me. Children understand what it means to trust. So when you're old enough to understand trust, and you're old enough to understand the person that you must trust in to be forgiven, then, then at that point, you have to believe the gospel. So uh, it's a theological construction. There's no, we can't cite chapter and verse, but we do have plenty of theological testimony in Scripture 
connecting dots that shows us that God's very nature would be uh, contradicted if he held someone accountable. So there's the word. That's where the word comes from, you know, in that phrase. That's why they use that word. God's very nature would be violated if he held someone accountable to do the one thing he says you must do, but it was impossible for them to do it. So that's God's grace is sufficient. So the Bible teaches that uh, aborted children in the womb, young children who die tragically, are in heaven today because they're covered by God's grace. Now Calvinists teach uh, just the opposite. They say, you know, if you have... 500 aborted babies, the elect ones are in heaven and the non-elect ones are in hell. That's what they say. <laughs> because it's not your faith that saves you. Remember we talked about this. What do they say saves you? The atonement. And then if you're elect, it's supplied to you because Christ only died for the elect. And if you're not elect, too bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. So I think we can, and I've written about this and talked about this elsewhere. There's a great book I think I mentioned in here one time by Bob Leitner called Safe in the Arms of Jesus that makes the theological argument about you know those that are either mentally handicapped it's not just an age thing what if someone is mentally disabled from birth and incapable of ever comprehending and believing the gospel right are they in hell of course not so uh it's it's a matter of god's character and his uh, nature his attributes that he would not hold someone accountable to do the one thing that he requires if it's impossible for them to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what I believe. And now, just as a side note, sometimes people confuse that issue of people who can't believe with those who have never heard. Mm -hmm. Totally different issue. Because the Bible explicitly addresses those who've never heard in Romans 1 and 2 and says, even if you've never heard the gospel... If you respond to general revelation, which is universally available to all, the heavens declare the glory of God, your conscience, the providence of God, anybody who recognizes there's a God and cries out to God, he will send them special revelation, namely the gospel, so that they can hear and believe. So those who've never heard the gospel, some unreached people group in some deep dark jungle, are still accountable according to God's word, because they can see the sun, they can see the stars, they can see the trees on God's nature, and they know there's a God. They know there's a God, and if they'll cry out to that God, God will make sure they hear the gospel. So that's a totally separate issue. We're not talking about those who've never heard. We're talking about those for whom it is an impossibility for them to believe the gospel. And if it's impossible for them to believe the gospel because of their mental capacity, then they are covered by God's grace and, and they're they're in heaven. So yeah. I hate to bring this subject. With all of this said tonight, what is the unforgivable sin? So the question is what is the unpardonable sin? So uh, there there are I'll give you two theologically acceptable answers, and then I'll tell you what I believe, uh, which one of them. Many people that are come from a traditional, dispensational, literal, grammatical, historical understanding of Scripture, the way we do, believe that that was a sin that can only be committed in the first century by the Jewish people in, during the life and ministry of Christ. And indeed, you never see it mentioned outside of that one time by Christ. Paul never talks about it. it, it that there's a good argument to be made for that. Um, being a theologian more than a Hebrew or Greek 
you know, uh, expert. My tendency is to look at the timeless truth behind what Jesus was saying there. And I have held and, and still hold, and again, I could be wrong, I'm not perfect, but that the unpardonable sin is essentially referring to that final moment of rejection prior to death. In other words, in, in my theological understanding, anyone in hell today, rather everyone in hell today, committed the unpardonable sin. They heard the gospel again and again and again, and at some point, and they rejected it every time, and finally the Lord said, enough's enough, and, they call, and, and their time came up, right? So believers, obviously, in either case, can't commit the unpardonable sin, whether you hold that it was just something for the first century that Jesus was dealing with Israel about, or whether you hold that it's the final rejection of the gospel. So unpardonable sin is not something that affects believers. It is for unbelievers, and it's essentially uh, rejecting the call of the gospel, the convicting work of the Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment for that final time. Would you then say that that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the same context same, there. Same yeah, context. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this was really good. I really appreciated your involvement tonight. And um, I really didn't even have to open the floor for questions. The floor just kind of opened itself up, Gary. I mean, it's just like... Uh, now, next week, though, I do want to... Because I'm eager to get to this as I was preparing for tonight. I do want to get to number five on our list, which is the gospel is not surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Master. And this is where I'm going to get into the mind-heart distinction and what the Bible says. But I've got a lot of scripture to show you that mind and heart are the same thing. And this Calvinistic notion that, you know, you can believe it up here, but until you believe it down here, you haven't really believed it is, is just not biblical. Okay. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.